What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and today we're going to be talking about furniture, diversity, and building meetups. And if that seems like a really strange set of things to be talking about in one episode, that's because this is a new kind of episode. A few weeks ago, we were thinking about how I could bring more value to this show, and I realized that I was sitting on a gold mine of questions in my inbox. Some of them are questions from the Coworking Google Group. Others are replies to my Coworking Weekly Newsletter. Sometimes they're tweets, sometimes they're in-person conversations. The point is, is I get asked questions about co-working, collaboration, team building, and all kinds of things all the time. And I don't always have time to sit down and write out an answer. But if you've been to one of our events, you know that I love Q&A. Oftentimes I'll do like 20 minutes of a workshop just so I can do an entire hour of question and answer because Q&A is where I find out how I can help you the most because it's the question you already have. It's not me trying to figure out how to help you. It's you telling me what you need help with and me trying to meet you where you are. So today's the beginning of an experiment where Mike and I are gonna grab from that collection of questions, pick a few of them, and I'm gonna sit in front of a microphone and answer them. I gotta be perfectly honest with you. I'm not exactly sure how this is gonna go, but here's my promise to you. We're gonna pick questions that actual people sent in, and I'm gonna give you answers that are 100% honest, completely unvarnished, and based on nearly a decade of my own experience. And here's what I'm hoping to get out of this. I'm hoping to hear from more of you. One of the coolest things about starting the show is I've been hearing from more of you who've been spending a whole lot of time with me. This podcast is not a substitute for face-to-face, but it's the closest I've gotten to interacting with people all over the world. So the best way I can interact with you right now is for you to send in your questions. We'll talk more about how to get your questions answered on the show at the end of today's episode. But for now, our very own Sam Abrams is going to read the first couple of questions for today's show. Let's get into it. Judy asks, what things should we consider when approaching the issue of purchasing furniture for our co-working space? Does brand or price or store matter? And how feasible is a DIY construction approach to this problem? All right, so we've got sort of a funny question to be choosing for our very first one, but I'm actually excited to put a quality answer out to this one because my go-to answer of the furniture just doesn't matter doesn't actually really help you. So uh, while it is true that any decision that you're making about the furniture in a co-working space is inconsequential in comparison to all of the questions and thought you should be putting into the community, the truth is is that if people are going to be coming to a place to get work done, you do need to be thinking about the place that they're actually going to be sitting to get that work done and how that affects how they work, how they interact with other people, and all of those kinds of factors. So before we dive into what I would recommend for how you would approach choosing furniture, let's talk about part of the problem with the furniture industry, so to speak, when it comes to stuff for co-working spaces. Now, you mentioned you're looking already at office supply stores, Craigslist, and Ikea, and I think you're headed in the right direction. For anyone else who's asking this kind of question and is looking at some of the larger commercial office furniture companies, you might have been looking at price tags and thinking, dear God, how am I going to afford this ridiculously expensive office furniture? And if you've never bought office furniture for a company, for a for an office space, for a professional environment, you might be surprised to find that it is incredibly expensive. And it's not expensive because the furniture companies are greedy. It's also not necessarily expensive because it's better. And we'll get into that in just a second. The reason it's expensive is because companies are looking to make a one-time decision and amortize that cost over the course of a really long period of time. But they're in complete control over deciding who's going to be there and who's not. And so they can say, if you want to work here, this is the furniture that you use. So a corporate purchaser is going to spend more money 
and live with that decision for a very long time. But you, running a brand new co-working space, you want some more agility. And I think you should be focusing on formulating your decision around furniture around that agility as well as one other thing, and that is your community itself. Let's talk about the agility first. When it comes to designing a co-working space, we come up with this sort of SimCity model in our head for how people work together, how people are going to use the space that you're in, how you're going to configure it, how you're going to lay it out, and you hope, 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 hope that you get it right the first time. And I'm going to tell you what, you won't. I certainly didn't. I've never seen somebody get it perfect on the right time because no design of a workspace or really anything that humans are going to interact with is going to survive first brush with that reality. So having office furniture that is designed to be reconfigurable and also mobile, right? If you've ever tried to move commercial office furniture, you've probably realized that it's not the lightest stuff in the world. Whereas the IKEA desks that we use and, and frankly a lot of co-working spaces use are extraordinarily lightweight. They're reconfigurable, you can move them around, you can swap and replace parts, and those things give you incredible agility. It's not so much that IKEA is cheaper and therefore less difficult to stomach the cost of, it's that it actually gives you the ability to change your mind as you go. Which leads us into the final point that you should be considering when you're buying your furniture, which is how is your community involved in that purchasing and decision-making process? So. Thinking through before you go and spec out any furniture, who are the people that are going to be in this space and how are they going to use it? Actually invite them into the empty space and go through how people might imagine that they work through the space. Now, remember that they're just as likely to be wrong as you are, but at least having that dialogue is going to help you see different things than how you imagine, again, in your sort of sim office world, they're going to interact with it. And that is absolutely crucial. Now, the last thing that I want to say about this question, I think, is the thing that people look overlook the most often, which is furniture that actually allows people to come together around the making of it. And I love this notion of constructing your own conference tables and desks and things like that. But what I'd encourage you to do is look at that as an opportunity to bring your community into that process. If the founders want to make it, how can they involve the community in whether it's the design process, the construction? Can they actually invite people over to the shop? Can they invite people to put a tool to whatever the, the material is to actually do the assembly. And if you're working with IKEA-grade furniture as well, that's actually a beautiful benefit to IKEA is that it, everything needs to be assembled. So whenever we've got new furniture, one of the first things we'll do is put out a bat signal and say, hey, we're going to take the next few hours to assemble another batch of desks or a new sofa or a new table or whatever it is. And it's an opportunity for people to come in and leave a tiny little bit of a mark on the space and feel that sense of ownership. That sense of ownership is way more important than almost anything else about the desk. Now, unless you're buying really, really terrible furniture, yes, there is a spectrum of ergonomics that need to be considered. And made-to-template furniture like IKEA might not be the most ergonomic furniture in the world. That's going to depend on the person. Everything there is built to averages. But the benefit you get from the agility that that furniture gives you, as well as the ability to invite people into the process, whether it's IKEA furniture or build it yourself or some other hidden option C, that's the stuff that's going to give you the most bang for your buck. It's funny how a topic like furniture, the one that I really enjoy talking about the least, actually turns out to be something that maybe uh, we've got something useful to say about. So uh, let's jump into the next question, uh, which comes from Stuart in the UK. Stuart asks... How do you distinguish your co-working space's demographic? And is it necessary to do so by catering to a specific type? 
Is it better to have a universal space or focused on digital or creative types? All right, Stuart, I'm not sure if you're going to like my answer or not, but if the choice is between diversity and niche, then the answer, my answer, is going to be both. Well, no, let me explain. So in the grand scheme of things, I'm always going to say the diversity trumps. So if I look at the success of Indie Hall over its lifespan, and most of the most successful co-working spaces that I've been attached to and involved in or experienced firsthand, diversity has created a really, really particular part of the experience. And the thing about that experience is that it's something that you can't get anywhere else. If you think about where most people work, the environments most people work in, whether it's in a professional setting or even before you're in a professional setting when you're in school, you're mostly ever surrounded by people who do exactly like what you do. And we know for a fact that that is a limiting factor when it comes to everything from creativity, innovation, learning, and lots of other factors that if those things are not present, people generally are not doing their best work. So a co-working space provides a really amazing opportunity for people who would never otherwise get a chance to sit next to each other, to sit next to each other, to get to know each other on other terms besides their profession. And this is where, where things are going to get, get specific, uh, more niche in just a second. The things that bring people together are unlikely to be their job titles, right? So what, what I mean by that is what are their interests other than their work? What are their passions? What are their creative outlets? What are the things that make them them other than their work? That's a magnet in the sense that it's both going to attract the kind, more of the kinds of people that you're looking for that are going to want to be around those kinds of people. It's also going to help repel the kinds of people that maybe you don't want to be there, right? So by focusing on the kinds of things that people care about, not just their work, but their passions, their interests, the things that make them them, you're going to bring something else to the surface other than their demographic, other than their job title. I'll give you a concrete example. Here at Indie Hall, a lot of people find out that the things that they have in common have more to do with the music they listen to, the kinds of books they read or comic books, the kinds of art they're into, the kinds of restaurants they're in, even the kinds of neighborhoods they live in, the reason that they chose to be in Philadelphia. People are bonding over almost anything other than the thing that they do professionally. So the question becomes, how do you figure out what a bunch of people have in common other than the work? And this is where it comes back to niche. And this is why my answer is both. Depending on where you are in the process, early or mid-stage, or maybe going through a bit of a reinvention of trying to figure out who your community is made of so that you can attract more people, by focusing on a niche, it can be a lot easier to get your head wrapped around a group of people and learn what kinds of things they have in common other than the work. Because this is the secret. This is the thing that we went through in like our third or fourth year where I realized that the people who were coming to Indie Hall were doing things that were less and less and less professionally like the people who are, were already at Indie Hall. And the reason for that is because we weren't talking so much about the profession, the job that people did. We were talking about the things that we loved and the things that we cared about. And by putting that message forward, things that people value, right? What makes them them? The things that are number one priority, the fact that people's families are often as important, if not more important than their businesses, is a big part of the culture here at Indie Hall. And I'm painting in really, really broad strokes here, but the fact that people place a priority on the people in their lives over the business abstract may be something that helps set us apart from another co-working space that's all business all the time. So wherever you're starting, taking a look at 
multiple niches that you're already exposed to and maybe focusing on one niche at a time, right? You probably have more niches around you than you even realize, but picking one at a time and then taking the time to evaluate other than the thing that makes that niche a niche, what are the other things that they have in common? What are their shared values? What are their shared interests? What are their shared passions? What do they have in common besides the work? And use that as the thread to weave people from outside of those industries back in. So the answer is both and to work sort of in phases and stages like that. And then what you're building towards is that ultimate experience where when I come in and I sit down next to somebody, I might not know what they do, but that's exactly the prime opportunity to find out who they are as a person. All right, we're going to do one more question today and then we're going to call this show a wrap. Cecilia asks, I started a meetup called Shut Up and Work, where people meet in coffee shops, support each other's work, and socialize during lunch. One to two people come each time, and it's been great, but the response hasn't been overwhelming. Even though I feel more efficient and disciplined with people around, I'm not sure what to do next to get more people. All right, so when you're just getting started, and really this goes beyond when you're just getting started, but I'd say especially when you're get, just getting started, it's tough to have confidence that the thing you're putting out there and maybe not getting an overwhelming response from is the right thing. The question is, is are you getting any response at all? And even if the response you're getting is very, very small, that's greater than nothing. And it's really, really easy to underestimate the power of time and patience. And that is the key with all things community building is they take time and patience. And so putting something out there into your community, a new gathering to bring people together, whether that's a jelly type event to you know, kick off some casual co-working, something educational, something social. If your first couple of events you get a couple of people to, you are already on the right track. So do not second guess yourself. The key here is to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and build a rhythm right? Because once you've got a rhythm established, it's sort of like pushing a snowball downhill. It's going to gain momentum over time. Now, there's one other component that I think people forget besides there being some rhythm and repetition to building a new regular occurring community building event. And that is that you need to go out there and actually find people, right? So just putting up flyers and telling a couple of friends is going to result in hopefully some people showing up. And if not, you may need to change the people that you're telling change the venue and things like that. But if you expect things to just keep going on their own from putting yourself out there once, you're going to be disappointed. So it's just as important to be going out to other things that are going on, immerse yourself in other people's events, get to know people where they already are instead of raising the bar so high that the first time they interact with you has to be at your event. That's the mindset shift we're talking about is you going out there into a community, getting involved in it, and then inviting people over. Uh, the analogy I like to use is sort of, I use lots of gardening analogies, but you, you can't just sort of manifest of a flower, right? It just doesn't pop up out of nowhere. It has to come from seeds. And those seeds are likely to be in other communities, other interactions you're going to have with people in the spaces where they already gather. So even if those places where other people are gathering aren't exactly what you want, it can be really valuable to go and listen and pay attention and get to know people and get immersed in those communities. Because if you actually pay attention, one of the things you might find is that you're not the only one who's not getting everything you want out of that other experience. And it's not to say that you're going to other events to poach or steal or hawk or sell or any of those sorts of things. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about at all. 
we're talking about is going to other community events to listen and participate. If your goal is to lead a new community, lead a new community event experience, whether we're talking about small scale pop-up co-working or large scale, you wanna run a huge co-working space, they all start in the same place. If you want to lead, you have to learn how to lead. And the best way to learn how to lead is to go out and participate in other communities. It almost seems like it's too simple, but I can guarantee you that if you show up to these other events with the goal of being the best participant you possibly can, you're gonna learn how hard it is to be a leader and you're gonna learn exactly what you need to do as a leader to help other people feel like their participation is actually worth their time. So keep doing what you're doing. It's obviously working a little bit, you know, keep up that rhythm, but also get out of the house. And by the house, I mean whatever your own event is. Go and find a couple of other meetups, a couple of other events, go participate elsewhere, get to know more people and look for opportunities to share what you're working on with them, but only after you've gotten to know them and what they're already about. Look for informed opportunities. Be smart about it. Don't treat it as an opportunity to just sell what you're doing. Treat it as an opportunity to invest some time and attention into other people. Because that, that attention, once people feel that you're actually paying attention, that you actually care, that's where things start to take a turn for the better. So good luck, keep going, and uh, keep me posted on the growth of your event as you continue building up the rhythm and going out and meeting more people. So that is the first try at a new sort of Q&A format. I'm going to be grabbing more and more questions from the newsletters, from the replies that people send me in my inbox. But if you've got questions that you want to have answered on this show, you can shoot me an email, alex at indiehall.org. You can tweet at me, at Alex Hillman. I'm going to be looking forward to more questions. The harder the questions, the better. I want you to try and stump me. If I don't know, I'm going to tell you. And best of all, if it's something I don't know, I'm going to go out and find somebody who does. I'm going to bring them on the show. How's that sound? So looking forward to your questions, looking forward to answering more of them, and we'll see you next time.